We will be in, as I said, Genesis 29. I'm going to start off, however, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, passage I think probably familiar to many of you. We have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible is historically accurate, but it is not a book of history. Historically accurate, but not a book of history. What makes it so unique is that in it, God uses history not by way of manipulation, but for articulation. This is, this is a thought that I was realizing reading through tonight and, and studying for tonight, that God inspired the prophets to compile historical narratives, things that actually happened in real time with real people in real places, compiled these all within the scriptures, not to hand us a history book, but to speak to us, to declare his heart to us, to express his thoughts and, and his ways. I mean, how amazing is that? Using things that, again, really happened. Jonah really did spend three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. He really did. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the one historical account was a picture of what was to come. It really happened. So Jesus would be buried and resurrect after three days. Moses and the children of Israel really did sacrifice the Passover lamb. However, as Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. History, spoken message. And God has done this throughout his word. Abraham was really asked to offer up his son Isaac. Yet, John 3.16 tells us, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Historical accounts taken a hold of by God to speak through time and space and dimension. To get, he's, he's beyond all that. You realize that. And yet he has found a way to speak into this life, into our lives, into our understanding using our own very history. And while Jacob really did have a dream of a stairway to heaven, Jesus explained that historical dream saying, John 1:51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will all see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So cool. History itself is an apparatus of divine messaging that God uses to speak to us. Now, in that awesome dream, and if you're in uh, Genesis 29, that's great, that's where you ought to be. We might even pull back a bit into Genesis 28, but in that dream, Jacob heard the Lord, right? He sees the stairway. He hears the Lord confirm the covenant, the same covenant God had given to Abraham and to Isaac, now he gives to Jacob in this dream, and then Jacob hears more. He hears God promise him his immediacy. I will be with you, Jacob. 
I will keep you wherever you go, Jacob. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you, Genesis 28, 15. So God gives this immediate promise of his presence to be with him, and Jacob hears all this, and in hearing this, he responded, saying, verse 18 of chapter 28, or sorry, saying verse 20 of chapter 28, if God be with me, now pause there, remember I told you, the word if can also be translated since. Since God be with me. And if you wanna know which one it is, you're gonna have to ask Jacob. Because I don't know the man's intentions. I believe he's saying since God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Since this is true, since he's made these promises to me, since he guarantees to be with me, then he will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. By the way, that's the second time tithing is mentioned in the Bible. The second time, and it's also pre-law. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Now, Jacob says, I will tithe the tenth of all that I get. I'm gonna give it back to you, Lord. And so we see this principle set up before the law, and note that this is what tithing is all about, trusting God's provision for all things. God promises to provide. We tithe to say, I trust you. I believe you. I accept your word for me. But Jacob, as he made this vow, had no idea what he was in for. God will be my God. This, this, this is good. And, and I, will, I will tithe to him and I will, I will follow him, he's saying. And he has no idea what's around the corner. And we rarely do. When people give, is, do we have jungle beat going on? Okay. I'm sorry, I'm very distractible. I mean, I, I think you know this about me. Um, Jacob didn't know what he was in for. And it reminds me of James and John. Same idea, Mark chapter 10, verse 37. They said to Jesus, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That is the cup of God's wrath, the cup of sacrifice, the cup of martyrdom. Are you willing or able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> they had no idea. They had no idea. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And of course, if you know your history, you know, James would be the first apostle martyred having his head chopped off by a sword. John will be the oldest living apostle, but after he'd been boiled in oil and, and sent off to Patmos in exile. So Jacob made his vow not knowing what was coming. Should he have not made the vow? James and John said, hey, we can go with you. Just let us sit by you, not knowing what they were saying. Should they not have asked to follow him like that? Oh, no. No, just, just be aware. Faith has a huge learning curve. From the moment you accept Jesus, from the moment I gave my life to Jesus, the learning curve has been like this. 
In fact, it's not really a curve because it never really comes back down. Faith has this amazing change and a storm is blowing for Jacob. That's, that's where I'm going with this. Storm's blowing for Jacob. Oh, I will make him my God and I'm gonna anoint this stone and I am, I'm gonna give a 10th to him and, and this is gonna be, it's all good, but a storm's coming. Storm's coming, Jacob. And it is a storm that we call sanctification. Chapter 29, verse one. Then Jacob went on his journey. Literally, remember, Jacob lifted up his feet. He's, he's happy. He's on his way. This is good. And he came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well, they watered the flocks. Now, the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. True, literal, actual, historical moment. But you gotta see where this is going. I hope it's obvious to you. If not, just pay attention for a moment. But let me ask you this question. How many significant moments historically took place at a well? We keep seeing this in scripture. The Lord came to Hagar at a well as Elroy, the God who sees, Genesis 16. Abraham's servant, Eliezer, we think it was Eliezer, but Abraham's trusted servant found Rebekah for Isaac at a well, Genesis 24. Jacob finds Rachel, as he will in this story, at a well, Genesis 29. Moses will meet Zipporah, his wife, at a well, Exodus chapter two. Jesus will save a Samaritan woman at a well, John chapter four. And what we get from this is it seems that at, at, at the well, lives are changed as relationships are formed. And we still meet Jesus at the well. See, the stone is rolled away so the sheep might be watered. The stone is rolled away that the sheep might drink from the well. Jesus said, John 4, 14, to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water which I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. We meet Jesus at the well. John chapter seven, verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water at the well. Roll the stone away and we get to drink from the well. Well, they must have known that when they set up that stone on the, no, they had no clue. That was history. But the Lord draws off it as he paints a picture for us and the picture gets bigger. Verse four, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know. <laughs> Now, that's my interpretation, but I have a feeling that there was something to their response of we know or we know him. I think they probably sounded a little like that. Oh, yeah, Laban. You'll see why. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And hey, here's Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. And he said, that is Jacob, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. You get a feeling like he sees Rachel and goes, I gotta get rid of these guys so I can have some one-on-one -on -one time with this girl. Verse eight, but they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water 
the sheep. So Jacob tries to shoo them away, but they can't because we wait till everybody's here and then we are watered at the well. Notice that. At the well, the watering happens when all the flocks are gathered. And I think there's a principle even in that. John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd, all the flocks gathered into one under the name of the good shepherd Jesus. Because the stone is heavy here in the story, they wait, I mean, this is the pattern Historically, what went on, what took place here at this particular well, because it was covered by this massively heavy stone, they just waited. Wait till all the flocks are there, then we just, told, then we just roll the stone once. Everybody gets watered, and then we put it back, and we're all good to go. And I was thinking about that, and thinking, you know, life is like that. Life can get heavy and hard to roll. And perhaps it's better that we wait in the togetherness of our faith because when we're together in our faith, we draw from the well, I think, more deeply. Oh, you can draw from the well by yourself. It can be done. But to be two or three gathered in his name, to be together as the household of God. And I find it very interesting right now with this whole coronavirus fear and everything, and I understand proper hygiene, and I understand being wise and not being foolish. I'm not gonna be kissing any of y'all. I get it. But all of this trying to shut down gatherings and the fact that spiritual gatherings was even called out by Jay Inslee, governor of Washington earlier today. Any gatherings over 200, including spiritual gathering. So any church that has 251 people can't meet in three counties in Washington. And I think, wait a minute, we need to meet. This is part of what the Lord has for us. Can't we just meet in homes? Sure, we can meet in homes. I think that's a great way to do it in addition. Well, can't I just pray to Jesus by myself? You certainly can, but sometimes life gets heavy and we need the full flock, all gathered together, all drawing from the well together because when we draw from the well together, it is better. Maybe you disagree, it's better for me. I would rather be with a fellowship of believers drawing from the well of the spirit of the living God than off by myself trying to get the same job done. I can meet him there and I do. And my personal, private, quiet time is very precious to me. But what we share when we gather as the larger flock of Jesus is so important. Listen to this. This is out of uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with the church that's quite messy, a messy flock of sheep. And in chapter 11, verse 21, Paul says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not the Lord's to eat the Lord's Supper. He's getting on their case because they're out of control. He says, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another one is drunk. Okay, we've never been that messy here. And then he says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What I shall say to you, or what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you, he says. And in verse 27, he says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's serious business. 
So how do we drink in an unworthy manner? How do we become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? He says in verse 29 even further, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And by the body, I believe Paul is talking about the body of Christ. I eat and drink judgment to myself if when I come to the table, I'm not considering the body, the flock, if we're not all together in this place. Verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 11, so then my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's, that's good. In other words, gather together. Wait for each other because when we take of communion, when we come to, as it were, the table or the well to drink together from the spirit of the living God, we do this together. Wait for each other. That's not because anyone's rushing to the head of the crowd, okay? But there's something to this idea of togetherness and what's interesting is in the very next chapter, in fact, a few verses down in chapter 12, verse, verse 12, Paul says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. The body of Christ. He says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made, note this, we were all made to drink of one spirit. There is something incredibly valuable, I think powerful and potent, to the body of Christ gathering together as one flock before the Lord to drink together. So we come to the well unselfishly, not racing ahead of others or judging others for not drinking, perhaps as fully as you drink. That's another thing that can happen in the drinking from the well. There are those who drink from the well and they get drunk on the drinking from the well, as it were, like Paul was saying, some of you are getting drunk. There are those who are so spirit-filled, their whole life is about the flowing in the spirit. I am all about flowing in the spirit of the Lord. But there are those who will, as they flow in the spirit, judge those who don't seem to be drinking quite as deeply as they are. Boy, does that miss the spirit of God, right? First fruit of the spirit is what? Love, love. That's how we know if the spirit is in us. So all this, I'm just saying the well is a place to come together and to drink from the Lord, to wait on the Lord. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse three, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit. Just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so we come together to drink. And by the way, I sent out an email today regarding the coronavirus and how we're handling it here as a church fellowship, and I'm just gonna tell you, I will be here teaching and we will have worship going on here as long as we need to. And if anyone feels uncomfortable at all with public gathering at any point in this global crisis, that's okay. We'll video it. If we can live stream it, we'll live stream it out. We'll do whatever we have to do to make sure it gets out to everybody. But I'm gonna be here. And we're gonna be in the word together and we are going to gather at the well and drink from the spirit of God because that's where the drinking is really good when we're together. Now, here at the well, the drama unfolds. Back to the history, verse nine. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. 
And when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob then went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban and his mother's brother. He takes it on himself. Everybody's waiting for all the flocks to get there. He sees Rachel coming with her flock and says, I'm, I'm doing this. And Jacob, get this, Jacob goes and rolls the stone away single-handedly. He does it. This guy's just taking it on himself. It's kind of funny. He blows into town. Nobody even knows who he is. And he starts telling them, look, go away. And they won't go away. And then he just takes it on himself to move the stone. Jacob is, I don't know, maybe showing off a little bit for Rachel. Showing off in strength. Hey, Jacob's no wimp. For those of you who thought Jacob was a mama's boy, he just moved the stone from the well by himself. He's not a wimp. He's showing off perhaps in strength and in service. He's, he's serving Rachel and her flock of sheep, this is not a wimp. Unless you read the next verse, and then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. <laughs> what is going on there? Someone needs to tell Jacob this is not the best idea on a first date. <laughs> if you're gonna be emotional, wait a few dates in, Jacob. Unbelievable. He weeps, and, and you know what? I went over and over. That every now and then, if I come to something and I cannot find the answer in the scripture or I'm praying about it, I'll start going to the commentaries and I'll go from one to another. To, no one touches this. No one deals with why is Jacob weeping? And I love her reaction. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebecca's son and she ran. Of course she did. <laughs> Guys kissing me and slobbering and blah. No, she ran and told her father, who he was. So this emotional weeping, <laughs> it's so bizarre. Truly, isn't it? I mean, we read something like that and think, okay, that's, that's weird. That's just, is this cultural? No, it really wasn't a cultural thing to weep on someone when you first meet them. <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's going on here? I don't know, he's 77 years old. Maybe he pulled a muscle in his back when he moved the stone. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Maybe he's just worn out from the journey. I'm just so tired, Rachel. <laughs> Is he just taken with her beauty? I don't know. Maybe he's just a sensitive guy. Maybe he spent too much time with his mom. I don't know. I have a suggestion. I have a thought. Genesis 28, 15, remember what God said to Jacob, behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. And I wonder if Jacob isn't perhaps overwhelmed with the blessing fulfilled, the birthright hope being realized, faithfulness of God bringing him to this time and this place. He has just traveled 450 to 500 miles on foot coming up here by himself all the way up and around and down into Aram, Haran, literally, to this well. He comes walking up to this well and he ends up exactly where he needs to be. He is in the exact place at the exact time with the exact girl when she comes to water her sheep. What a coincidence. And perhaps he is weeping. Perhaps the tears come from, to his eyes. Perhaps he's just choked up because of the revelation of the divine promise. God is with me. This is 
amazing to me. Perhaps he's thinking. And anything beyond that, you're just gonna have to, again, ask Jacob, what were you thinking with all the, <laughs> Well, he dries his eyes, and, his, and, and the family then shows up in verse 13. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. And then he related to Laban all these things. Okay, so Jacob spilled the beans. It's Uncle Laban, right? He's my uncle. I should be able to trust him. He tells him all these things, all what things? I don't know, perhaps the Lord's promise, his plan, his provision, what God has done. Maybe he tells him about the birthright and how he purchased it for a bowl of lentil bean soup or perhaps he tells him about the blessing and how it actually landed on him and he kind of deceived and got in there before Esau, but then after the fact, when his father realized it, Isaac said, yes, and he shall be blessed and did confer upon him the blessing, confirming the birthright. And perhaps he tells him all about his father Isaac's wealth that now is his as the firstborn. You can just see Laban's eyes lighting up and maybe hear ka-ching, 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 ka-ching as he's listening to all this. Uncle Laban, you're gonna see, is a truly conniving trickster. And he's listening to this story of Jacob and he realizes Jacob is a good investment in financial futures. Jesus, on his part, John chapter two, verse 24, was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. Jacob just comes and blurts it all out. Here's the deal, lays it out. Jesus, I've always found this verse fascinating. Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? Jake and I have talked about this. In fact, that's a verse that has affected me ministry-wise over the years. Aren't we called to love each other? And aren't we called to intimacy and spiritual relationship one with another? So what does it mean not to entrust yourself to other people? Aren't we supposed to? Shouldn't we entrust each other to one another? And the reality is that Jesus was both relational and wise. Jesus didn't entrust himself to all men. That is, he didn't tell everybody that he was Messiah. Jesus knew if he had spilled those beans right at the beginning of his ministry, his ministry would have lasted three or four days. He knew what was in the heart of all men. So he didn't tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That does not mean that Jesus didn't forge relationships. What it means is that Jesus was thoughtful. Jesus was discerning with people and he was not entrusting them with his true nature as Messiah too soon. You know who he would do that with. It's the Samaritan woman at the well. She will be the first person who even hears, I who speak to you am he. But Jesus doesn't just go blurting it out like Jacob with Laban here and sharing with everyone. He put it another way, Jesus did, and it's, it's worth thinking through and processing in our lives spiritually. Matthew 7, verse six, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So you need to be discerning when you share Jesus with people. Doesn't mean that we pull our punches, it doesn't mean that we don't share, but there are some people, you know, if you share, it's not gonna go well. Okay, 
Find someone who's gonna listen. Seek someone whose heart is open. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Be discerning and wise with your information. Well, Jacob blurts the whole thing out, and I think it's gonna be the cause for some trouble to come. Verse 14, Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now, you read that and think, well, that's nice. You know, he, he wants to pay him. He wants to get him on the payroll and get him reliant upon him. Laban is working an angle here. And if he can start paying wages to Jacob, he's, he's got hooks in Jacob. So tell me what, what you want, and, and I'll, I'll pay that. Laban had two daughters, verse 16. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Rich Mullins wrote a song about this that I just love, and the first verse begins, Jacob, he loved Rachel, and Rachel, she loved him, and Leah was just there for dramatic effect. Well, it's right there in the Bible, so it must not be a sin, but it sure does seem like an awful dirty trick. Leah and Rachel. Leah, poor thing. She's weak-eyed, first of all. The Bible tells us her eyes are weak, and that word, what that literally describes is either of condition that she was semi-blind or weak of color, that her eyes really weren't much to look at. Some say looking at her would put a strain on your eyes. I don't know. I don't know about that, you know. Oy vey, Leah, put the veil back on, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but Leah's name, this is to me the, the real tragedy. Is, is anyone, do we have a Leah here tonight? Is Leah Omen here? I don't see her. Okay, good, I'm glad because I was worried how I was gonna share this. <laughs> Leah's name, two possible meanings. One is weary. So we got old weary weak eyes. That's great. The other possible meaning of the name Leah is wild cow, so I don't know, you pick. <laughs> so, so here's Leah, you know, and, and then you've got Rachel, Rachel. Literally, literally, that's how you say her name, Rachel Welch. <laughs> I mean, this beautiful bombshell of a, of a girl. Rachel means little ewe lamb. Little ewe lamb, wild cow. <laughs> Raquel is drop dead gorgeous. The Bible uses the word beautiful twice. You don't see it. It's only used once when it says she's beautiful of form and face. The Bible reads literally, she's beautiful of form and she's beautiful of face. She is gorgeous. She comes strolling up with her sheep and <laughs> Jacob's like, gong. And then there's Leah. Yeah, okay, there's... Verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel, lusted for her actually. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. These are the wages he seeks. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. That's a great answer. Josiah, why didn't I say that to you? <laughs> I mean, man, I might as well give her to him. I mean, is, is anybody else? He's asking at least, that's something, <laughs> 
Better for me to give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Listen, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Why did I say originally Jacob lusted for Rachel? Well, it says he loved her, but at first his love was physical. She was beautiful of form. She was beautiful of face. And there's a subtle change in the word love here in the Hebrew. The first love, he loved her. Jacob loved Rachel is simply achab. Achab, which is the word for love, but when later on we see it again, they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. That word is achabat. And it's a longer form. Achab means affection. He was affectionate for her. He, oh yeah, this is good. But achabat is in the feminine form, by the way, it's a deeper intimacy. And so here's the difference. There's a love when he had first seen her, a love of immediate infatuation that after seven years or along the seven-year journey turned into a lasting, intimate love. He really loves her. And he loves her so much, the proof is in the time. You could say true love really does wait. I thought it was a great campaign. When I was a youth pastor, true love waits. Remember that, any of y'all? True Love Waits, the True Love Waits campaign, and it was a whole entire video series and teaching series, and and I took youth groups through it two or three times. Every couple of years, we went back through True Love Waits when I was youth pastoring down in Southern California, talking about, man, if he loves you, girls, he will wait for you. If she loves you, guys, she will wait for you. That true love will wait until marriage and not have to happen physically before the marriage. That's the right kind of love. That's how you really know someone loves you because love is patient, right? Love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And you know what? Time flies when you're in love. When you're truly in love, what's a few more days? And you know what? When you find yourself getting weak and weary in this world, would you just remember this? Paul said, 2 Timothy Chapter four, verse eight, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you love his appearing, guess what? Not only will time fly, but you're gonna fly when he calls us to meet him in the clouds. Verse 21, and then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. He's loved her for seven years. He's served for seven years. Now's the time. Verse 22, Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now, in the evening, he took his daughter, Leah. Uh Uh-oh. Weak-eyed wild cow. Just telling you her name. No, he took his daughter, Leah, and brought her to him, and Jacob went in to her. Well, how's that work? No doubt it was dark, no doubt. And no doubt she had a veil which would have been customary so he wouldn't have seen when they went into the tent to consummate the marriage. 
Well, Laban, verse 24, also gave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, (laughs) behold, it was Leah. I love how that's written. I can just imagine. (laughs) Jacob rolling over. Behold! (laughs) It was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Verse 26, but Laban said, it is not in the practice of our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. I thought you knew that. (laughs) When the Lord appeared to Jacob in his dream, remember we talked about this Sunday, there was no rebuke. He didn't get on to him about deceiving his father. He said nothing about, you know, the chicanery, the trickery that that, that went on at that time. Not a word. He just confirmed the covenant. He confirmed that, that, you know, Jacob had the blessing and the birthright. He said, I'm gonna be with you. He never rebuked him. Note this. Numbers 32, 23 tells us, however, be sure your sin will find you out. And I believe that's what has just happened. You see, Jacob's sin found him out. We see it in four parallels here to what Jacob did. As Isaac was blind to Jacob's deception, so Jacob is blind to Laban's deception. He has no idea he's just gone in to Leah instead of Rachel. (laughs) Leah had to know it, right? There's so many things running through my mind right now and some of them are probably inappropriate so we probably need to just move on. (laughs) But he's blind to this deception. There's the veil, there's the darkness, he doesn't know. As Isaac blessed the younger above the older, in reverse, Jacob gets the older instead of the younger. As Isaac thought Jacob was Esau, here (laughs) Jacob thought Leah was Rachel. In yet another reversal, Jacob pretended to be his older brother while here Leah had to have pretended to be her younger sister to pull off this deception. And in verse 27, Laban says, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also. We'll throw her in as a bonus for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. He's got him. He knows he loves Rachel. It's all about benefiting Laban. Well, Jacob did so and completed her week and he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. Verse 29, Laban also gave his maid, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as her maid. And so Jacob went in to Rachel also and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah and he served with Laban for another seven years. So apparently what happened is Jacob received Rachel immediately with the guarantee that he would sign on for seven more years. At this point, Jacob is 84 years old. Which kind of changes the narrative were this to be a Hollywood Cineplex movie. (laughs) He's 84 and he's gonna work another seven years. So he'll be what, 91? When he now is free and clear with both of his wives and their servant women. So seven years, four women, 
Leah and Zilpah, Rachel and Bilhah. Zilpah, um, Leah's maid, Zilpah means trickling myrrh. Trickling myrrh, keep that in mind. And Bilhah, this is Rachel's maid, means troubled. <laughs> Who names their daughter Troubled. Troubled and wild cow. These are great names. I don't know. Anyway, this is history. It's just history. But it's used as divine articulation for much more than that. What, what else is being divinely articulated here? Number one, note this, education. First of all, God is going to eventually ban polygamy, not to mention marrying two sisters in the same life at least, However, this story really serves as an educational morality tale for how bad an idea it is to marry into polygamy. So that later on, as the law comes forward and, and there is that return to monogamy and that return to marrying just, just one, and if she dies, then there was allowance for marrying her sister, but not while they were both alive, because this is a nightmare. This is just gonna get worse before it gets better. Jacob, with all four of these women, this will be an education. Secondly, explanation. It's interesting to me that this is an early specific explanation of the meaning of the word in verse 27, weak. Complete the weak of this one. And in verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her weak. What does that mean, complete the weak, finish out the weak? It could mean the marital week. You know, in, in the culture and in the time, and this actually carried on through many, many years of, of Hebrew practice, but there would be the marital week. They'd have, they'd have the feast, and then it'd be a, a week of, or it'd be an entire week of feasting sometimes, ending with the consummation. The, the couple would then go on into the marriage tent and would consummate the marriage after the week-long celebration, there were different ways that it was practiced and it changed over time. But perhaps when he says complete the week of this one, there was a day or two left, I don't know, finish out the week and I will give you Rachel as well. Or it could apply to the seven year agreement, complete the week. Seven days in a week, seven years is the length of the agreement and seven more years then would be the length of the continuing agreement. So either way, week is seven, but it is this word, Bible students, you know the word that I'm talking about? Shabuah. Shabuah. Note that it's an important word. A Shabuah in Hebrew does not mean a week. Shabuah means a unit of seven. A Shabuah in Hebrew is what we would in English call a heptad. We've talked about this before, especially related to Daniel chapter nine. Let me quickly read this to you. Daniel 9, 24 says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. It's not weeks, it's Shabuim. 70 sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city, Jerusalem. This is the angel Gabriel speaking to the prophet Daniel and he gives this remarkable prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. 70 weeks, 70 shabuim, literally 70 sevens have been decreed. And Daniel prophesied this period, specifically relating to Israel, saying that it's, Israel has a program, God has a plan for Israel that will last exactly 70 sevens, 70 shabuim, 70 blocks of seven, if you will. And if we count those as seven-year periods, kind of like we see with Rachel and Jacob 
and Leah historically, if these are 77-year periods, then 483 of the years that are talked about by Gabriel to Daniel have been completed perfectly. Just listen to this. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city to do what? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, it's not gonna be necessary anymore and to anoint the most holy place. So are you, you are to know and to discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens. Seven sevens. That decree, there's only one decree that fits, and it was given in 445 BC. Just one decree that fits. And then he says there will be seven sevens. That's 49, 49 years. And then 62 sevens, so another 434 years. It will be built again, that is Jerusalem with plaza and moat, even in times of distress, which you can read about in the book of Nehemiah exactly as described here. Then after the 62 sevens, the Messiah, so this is after 483 years, Messiah will be cut off, that is killed and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. After 400, from that signing of the decree, 483 years, we see Jesus enter into Jerusalem and a week later, he's crucified. And after that, in AD 70, Jerusalem falls and is wiped out. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. 483 years, 69 out of 77 fulfilled exactly as described by the angel to Daniel historically. We can look back and track this now. One seven is left. One seven that has never been fulfilled. That is the final seven-year period, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one Shabuim, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Talking about the prince who is to come, Antichrist. Now, I wish I had time. I'm not gonna go through this anymore tonight. You can study it out further. We went very slowly and I detailed how do we get those 483 years and what does that look like in our Daniel study and that's available on the website or you can just study this out on your own. But what I'm saying here and showing you is that all of this history, even this history of the seven years, this historical event happened. He had to work for seven years and the Bible uses the word Shabuah. And then he had to work another seven years and the Bible uses the word Shabuah. And we have this early instruction now, this explanation of what a heptad can look like seven years. And God lays that in so that when the prophecy comes from Gabriel to Daniel, now we can go, oh, so, so 77, seven what? Seven days, seven months, seven years? Well, it was seven years with Jacob, wasn't it? Who is Jacob the father of? The children of Israel. Jacob will become Israel. The tie is, this is how he dealt with Jacob, seven, seven, or the, the seven, the Shabuim. And now we see it applied to Israel. So there's an explanation here that I find fascinating as God uses history in this account to explain his word, and to prepare us for what he's going to say.
Education, it's an education for Jacob. Explanation, it's an explanation for us in understanding the Shabuah and the Shabuim. But there's one more reason that this story is included here, and it is generations. Generations. Rachel's introduced as the love of his life. Leah's introduced as the one who came in for the first wedding night. Ooh. And then we also have met now Zilpah and Bilhah, four women who will be the mothers of the sons of Jacob, that is, the children of Israel. So generations. Verse 31 says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Literally, the Bible says, hated. The Lord saw Leah was hated, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. This is an incredibly tender moment, a tender verse in the story. As God, who is love, looks at the one who is unloved. The word in the Hebrew is hated. Leah was hated. Now, Jacob didn't hate Leah, but he chose Rachel. And that's a biblical standard that you need to understand when we see that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. The hate isn't that God hates. God doesn't hate. God is love. But God chose Jacob and did not choose Esau. And in the manner of choosing, then one is seen as loved and the other is seen as hated. Jesus says the same thing. No one can come to me unless he hates mother and father. Jesus is not telling us to hate our parents. Jesus is saying, unless you choose me over them, it is a love of choice. It is a hatred of choice. I choose rather to follow Jesus, even than my own family, even than my own flesh, even than my own children or my own siblings or my own wife or my own Mother-in-law, not a difficult choice. You know, I, I just choose, I'm kidding. But I choose him, I love him, love being that choice. And so Leah is not chosen, and therefore she is unloved. She is the one left out. Rachel is loved, and God looks and says, you know what? I see this, I see this. And so he gives her a child. Verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. And Reuben means behold a son or look my son or see, see a son. That's Reuben. And then continuing, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved or hated. He has therefore given me this son also, and she named him Shimon, and Shimon means heard. God has seen, God has heard. Reuben is the son of the seen, and Shimon is the son of the heard. Shimon from the Hebrew root word, Shema. And if you've heard of the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and it comes by hearing. So that's Shema, and that's where Shimon, or if our Bible translates, it probably says Simeon, which is the Anglicized version of Shimon. So we've got Reuben, seen, and Shimon, heard. By the way, note this, just tuck this one away. Jacob is going to later replace the first and second born status of Reuben and Shimon with Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
they will move into first and second position ahead of Reuben and Shimon. Why? Because Reuben and Shimon, they go to mess up big. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son. Now this time, she says, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Hear how hard Leah is trying just to be loved by Jacob? It's heartbreaking. And so she named him Levi, which means joined to or attached. So we have seen and heard and attachment. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. So by the fourth time, Leah's saying, whatever Jacob does, I'm just, I'm gonna praise the Lord. He's given me four boys. And therefore she named him Judah and then she stopped bearing. And Judah, of course, means praise, praise. Interesting that the praise of the Lord will come through the lion of the tribe of Judah and that Leah, the unloved, who praises the Lord here, she does so without knowing that she has a distinct honor, that of all the children of Israel, Leah is going to be the mother of Levi, the high priestly tribe, and the Aaronic priesthood will come from her son Levi, and of course, the ruling tribe, Judah, the tribe of David, and ultimately the tribe of Jesus comes through Leah. This was by God's loving choice. Verse one of chapter 30. Now when Rachel saw that she had borne Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I'd die. <laughs> Quiet down, little ewe lamb. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And the tension's mounting. And Jacob is getting a whole lot more than he bargained for. Now the sisters are at each other's throats and there's jealousy and there's conflict and there's strife and there's envy and Jacob is right in the middle of this storm. In verse three, she said, this is, this is now Rachel, here's my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children, which was practiced, we've talked about this. This was practiced in the Middle East of the time. If the woman couldn't have a child, she could send in her maiden and that's exactly what Sarah did with Hagar. So now Rachel's just following suit. Take Bilhah. Bilhah, whose name means trouble, and there's gonna be trouble. Go into her. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has heard my voice and has given me a son. So she named him Dan. Dan means vindicated or judged. The vindication of the Lord, Dan. Well, verse seven, Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali, which means wrestling. So she now has two sons, vindication and wrestling. Through her maid Bilhah, whose name is Trouble, so trouble produces the tribe of Dan, which means judgment, and that's the first tribe to dive headlong into idolatry. So there's trouble for you. And she also gives birth to Naphtali, wrestling, because she's wrestling with envy. And all of this is trouble. And in fact, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse seven says, alas, for the day is great, there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. 
but he will be saved from it. See, that's what God does. Is Jacob doing the right thing going into Bilhah? No, he's not. Not based on the standard of creation, one woman for one man for one life. No, he's not doing the right thing here. You know, he's been with Leah, he's been with Rachel, now it's Bilhah. Don't worry, Zilpah's gonna get in on the act too. And Jacob's just, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, going into whichever wife he has to go into, and it's not right, it's trouble, it's problem for him, and yet Jeremiah says, but even the distress of Jacob talking about the tribulation, he will be saved from it, and such is the grace of God. Verse nine, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her name Zilpah. Remember, Zilpah means trickle of myrrh and gave her to Jacob as a wife, and Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad, which means fortune. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. And so she named him Asher, which means happy. So trickling myrrh gave Leah fortune and happy. And I'm wondering who's gonna bear Sneezy and Dopey. Verse 14. <laughs> now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went in and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is, a small, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you also take my son's mandrakes? So Rachel said, therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. This is family life in Jacob's household. We're now bartering sexual liaison for some fruit. What is going on here? Well, when Jacob came into the field, from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. <laughs> wow. Mandrakes in the Hebrew is daduim. And daduim are actually what you could translate love fruit. <laughs> These were uh, little berries with reddish white blossoms and they would grow a yellow fruit the size of small apples. And it was believed colloquially in the Middle East of the day, it was believed that these apples were, uh, could bring about fruitfulness. That they were both an aphrodisiac but that they also would help a woman who was barren become fertile if she would eat the mandrakes. That's why Rachel wants them. Because Leah's, coming, Leah's son's coming in. He's got all these mandrakes. Oh, give me a few of those. <laughs> Maybe that'll help. This barrenness. It's in the Bible another time. The Song of Solomon, chapter seven, verse 13, as the bride sings to her beloved, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance. And over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved, the mandrakes, speaking of fruitfulness, the bride, a picture of the church, speaking to the beloved, Jesus, saying, I wanna be fruitful for you. Do you wanna be fruitful for Jesus? It doesn't come from eating a piece of fruit. It just comes of declaring the name of the Lord. Well, culturally, again, these were eaten to produce barrenness, and, and Rachel's like, give me some of those. What Rachel needed was not mandrakes. What she needed was grace. Well, verse 17, God gave heed to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar, which means recompense or wages or payment. 
And then Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. She's still trying to get his affection. She's still vying for Jacob's love. Six sons later, maybe this one will be enough. Maybe this one will be enough. And so she named him Zebulun. Zebulun, the root word for Zebulun is Zeved. And Zeved means a marriage dowry. So what Leah is thinking here is I'm, she's still trying to buy his affection one way or another. Verse 21, afterwards she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. And Dinah is the feminine form of the name Dan. So they already have Dan, so this is now Dinah. And she's the only named daughter of Jacob in the Bible. Not a whole lot of significance beyond that except understanding that Jacob had many more daughters that are not named. Genesis 46, 15, all his sons and his daughters numbered 33. 33. So he would have a lot of children. These are the 12 sons or the 11 sons at this point. There will be a 12th and then the one daughter. So just 13 that are actually named but there will be many, many more daughters specifically. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. Boy, after all this, all these kids in the house running around. Leah's got kids, six of them, you know. And there's Zilpah and there's Bilhah and they're all strutting their stuff and here's Rachel and you've gotta understand this tent, this family was a dysfunctional mess. And Jacob's right in the middle of this storm. But God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb so she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach and she named him Yosef saying, may the Lord give me another Son. The Hebrew word taken away is Asaph. And the Hebrew word adding to is Yosef. And so the, bear, the name actually bears both meanings, that my reproach is taken away, but he has added to me, giving me a son. Rachel is now on a childbirth mission. Maybe God will add more to me. He's taken away my reproach. I'm able to bear a son. Let's name him Yosef. Add more. Give me more kids. I can have. I can bear. We're on a roll. Be careful what you demand. Back in verse one, remember what she said? Give me children or else I die. And in Genesis 35, 18, we will find out it came about as her soul was departing for she died that she named him her second son, Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So she will have another son, but she will die in the bearing. Jacob is gonna bury his beloved Rachel at a place called Bethlehem. And then Leah, the unloved, will be buried next to her husband Jacob, actually in honor at the cave of Machpelah. Rich Mullins continued singing, now Jacob's got four women and a whole house full of kids. And he schemed his way back to the promised land. He finds it's one thing to win him, it's another to keep him content <laughs> when he knows that he's only just one man. For the blessed son of the birthright, things at this point are not turning out as he once had thought. We're gonna stop there tonight, but I have one more thing to share with you. 
Jacob at this point, with all the women, with all the kids, and with all that's been going on in this chapter, Jacob is in the midst of a storm. I would call it a perfect storm. Not because he's got it coming from different directions. You know, all four of these women coming at him and the kids coming at him. It's a perfect storm of dysfunction. No, this is a perfect storm of sanctification that is blowing in on Jacob and it's gonna get more intense in Jacob's life. As we go forward, you will see this. And interesting, sanctification is moving in on us today like a storm, isn't it? See, the experiences in the world and the circumstances, good, bad, and ugly, for the follower of Jesus, they are about sanctification. But the sanctification that's happening, and, and, and get this before we go, the sanctification of the Lord is not from terror or wars or hurricanes or tornadoes or coronavirus 19. Think back to God's promise to Jacob. Behold, I am with you, he said. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. My friends, for the love of Jacob, the immediacy of the Lord is his sanctification. The storm of sanctification, as it were, is God himself. He said, I will not leave you. I will be with you. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Jesus said, I will be with you to the very end of the age and that is so comforting and so encouraging and so wonderful and such an amazing blessing and it is sanctification. Because when God says, I will be with you, he will not leave you impure. He will not leave you unsanctified. The very presence of God in your life guarantees that you will be refined. And refinement isn't always easy. Proverbs 17.3 says the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. 1 Peter 1.7 says the proof of our faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're gonna go through tough things. We're gonna face hard times, and it's not coronavirus, it's Christ. It's Jesus in your life that is working on you, working on me, and he will bring about sanctification and peace and comfort and joy and strength and grace and mercy, all that as well, but he's sanctifying you. He's sanctifying me, and Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you realize that the very presence of God in your life will consume everything else? And we will either come through, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, with gold, silver, precious stones, but we will not come through with wood, hay, or straw. That stuff's gonna be chaff. For I am confident of this very thing, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the, the sanctification of Jacob, it's not from... Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah. It's not from having to deal with Laban. It's not from all the mess of life that is now part of his world. The sanctification of Jacob is because God said, I'm with you. And if God be with you, you will be sanctified. Father, we bow to you tonight. 
and we welcome your perfecting presence. We welcome, Lord, your all-consuming consecration. Your refinement through relationship. We meet you at the well of your spirit. We ask that you, Lord, would refresh our hearts even as the fire of your holiness burns away the chaff of sin and everything that is not eternal in us. All of our works, Lord, that are not of lasting value, we accept that these must be burned away. We accept that we must lose these things. And we accept that your presence is purification for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you will give us everything we need to understand as your children what you're doing, how you discipline us, how great your love is for us, that you would care so much to discipline us and purify us and refine us. Father, there is nothing I want more than to be in your presence. And I believe my brothers and sisters stand in the same place There is nothing we want more than to be in your presence, Lord Jesus, but we realize to be there in the presence of perfection, we must be made perfect. So I ask you, Lord, to give us confidence in this life. When we find ourselves discouraged, when we find ourselves disappointed, when we find ourselves depressed at the circumstances of life, would you, Father, lift our heads and remind us that even through hard times, you are purifying for yourself a spotless bride. Oh, Lord, thank you for your deep love. In Jesus' name.